We turn to God's Word and uh, we begin a new morning series today in the book of Ruth. So uh, in your Bibles, please find the book of Ruth, which is in the Old Testament, and it starts on page 266, page 266. And we're going to hear together the first six verses of the first chapter, short reading this morning from the book of Ruth. I wonder how many of you have read the book of Ruth in the last 12 months. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but uh, we'll try and work through it together uh, for a number of Sunday mornings. Ruth chapter 1, first six verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to Sojourn, Sojourn means to go and stay somewhere temporarily, went to Sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them How many of you over the age, I suppose, of about 22, 23, there or thereabouts, vividly recall 9-11? Some of you here are too young, far too young to remember 9-11. I remember it with breathtaking clarity. One reason was that some years earlier, back in 1995, I had visited New York City, gone up the southern tower of the World Trade Center, stood on the very top, looking out over Manhattan, a breathtaking sight, and looking down the quarter of a mile vertically from the top of that tower to the street below, and thinking, what a massive structure this is. The sheer scale and height of this building is out of this world. When I heard in the afternoon of Tuesday September the 11th, 2001, that planes had flown into these two towers and then that these two towers had collapsed to the ground. It was a feeling of intense horror, having been there just a few years earlier. And you may remember, or you may know, all of you, many of you, that the site of that World Trade Center in the immediate aftermath of that 9-11 attack 
was known as Ground Zero. Ground Zero. A scene of utter devastation. In fact, the Americans often use the term Ground Zero to describe any site that has been exploded, detonated, destroyed following a nuclear test or the dropping of an explosive or anything like that. There is a Ground Zero zone. And we can speak about perhaps our own Ground Zeros in our own lives. Times in your life where you look around and you say, everything's bleak, everything's dismal, everything's devastated. There's nothing to be remotely cheerful or happy about. I'm living in ground zero. Back to ground zero in a few seconds. I've strongly sensed in the last few months the Lord urging me to preach from this book of Ruth here at Grove on Sunday mornings. Why? It's one of the most beautiful short stories ever written. There's even a story that may be apocryphal, made up, that the learned Dr. Samuel Johnson of 18th century London went to his gathering of literary friends and he read this book of Ruth uh, to a group of men who were, who were such intellectual um, cynics they, they didn't even recognize it came from the Bible. And they said to him, that's a beautiful story. Where did you get that story? It's, it's beautiful, it's breathtaking, it's wonderful, it's, it's heartwarming. Dr. Johnson said to them, well, it's actually from a book that you despise. It's from the Bible, and they were amazed by that. It is a beautiful narrative. And across the world and across cultures, everybody loves a great story, a beautiful narrative. And I often think of the book of Ruth as being a bit like the whole Bible being compressed into four short chapters. Because as we go through this book of Ruth, we will encounter many wonderful, important, central, glorious biblical themes. Come and listen to the book of Ruth over these coming Sunday mornings, God willing, and we will see so much of Scripture being unfolded by God as he reveals these things to us. But the book of Ruth begins, this is my point, the book of Ruth begins at ground zero. It begins with a descent to ground zero. And what I want to do this morning is to walk us together through the first six verses, and particularly the first five verses, seeing that step-by-step descent, or that step-by-step or spiral-by-spiral descent into the ground zero that Ruth begins with, in order that from there we may build up. And there are, there are six brief headings, all beginning with the letter D, that describe the descent to ground zero as we take a little journey through these first few verses of Ruth. Come with me. And the first D is disorder. Disorder. 
And disorder is found in the very first few words of the book. In the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled. And that says it all. If you see where the book of Ruth is in your Bibles, it comes immediately after the book of Judges. What's the book of Judges all about? It's a fairly wide, long narrative of a number of centuries of Israel's history between the death of one great leader called Joshua and the birth of another great leader whom God raised up called Samuel. And between the death of Joshua and the birth of Samuel, you have the period of the judges. What was the period of the judges like? Well, you don't need to read much of Judges to find out. You know, many of you, that it's all summarized in the last verse of Judges, the verse immediately preceding the first verse of Ruth. It's all quite deliberate, it seems to me. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was disorder. There was chaos. There was violence. There was anarchy. There was the collapse of all law and order. And yet, God is going to do something in that situation. The society that we live in today in 2020, is not by any stretch of the imagination anything like as disordered as the one which existed in the time of the judges. It is not. There is still law and order in our country. If there weren't, there wouldn't be the peace and tranquility and order that we find in this building here this morning. There would be gunfire, there would be noise, there would be interrogation, there would be people in uniforms, there would be buildings blown to pieces and all the rest of it. And we don't have that here, praise God. We have the blessing of peace. Let's give thanks to God that we have that. And yet, and yet, we know that disorder and dysfunctionality are eating away at the fabric of so much in our society. So much of what is good and godly and honorable in family life, in public life, in relationships, in the whole area of gender and sexual ethics is being undermined and disordered. Disorder is creeping into society, advancing into society. You see, there are great parallels between what we read and what we see. The Bible is a book for every day and for every place. There was disorder. Secondly, there was destitution. Destitution. Because in those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. We heard about a famine earlier on with the children. A famine. Well, that all sounds rather tough, doesn't it? But I guess these things happen, don't they? Few, dry winters, lack of rain, pests infesting the crops, maybe the odd swarm of locusts, probably bad agricultural planning, maybe the second millennium BC equivalent of global warming and environmental damage going on in that part of the world and and no uh, eco-warriors in those days to go and tell the people of Israel what to do about it. 
Is that what it was? And it was just a bit of a shame, though. There, happened, there just happened to be a famine. We mustn't write off a famine like that. Not if we know our Bibles. God had given his people this land to live in. There was a famine in the land. What land? Doesn't tell us, does it? Well, it's implied. It's the land of Israel. It's the land that God gave to his people as an inheritance to live there and to enjoy the fruit of that land. And there was never meant to be a famine there. Why would there be a famine in the land? Well, it's quite clear if we know our Bibles, as we need to grow to learn our Bibles. By the way, read your Bibles, brothers and sisters. Become familiar with your Bibles. And one of the most important chapters of the Old Testament is the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28. What's that all about? It's the Lord saying to his people as they're about to enter this land. If you keep my rules and commands and statutes. And you follow me and obey me in the land that I give you. I will bless your land. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity. In the fruit of your womb. In the fruit of your livestock. In the fruit of your ground. Within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 11. That's obedience and blessing. But the opposite is true. If the people did not obey the voice of the Lord their God. Verses 23 and 24. The heavens over your head shall be bronze. And the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. What a graphic description. You imagine it's uh, October in, in the Near East. It's when the rains are meant to come in the autumn. And you look up to the sky and you see dark swirling clouds. And down from those dark swirling clouds comes not drops of water but grains of dust. Powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. That was never meant to be. That's what happened in Egypt in the plagues. It wasn't meant to happen in Israel, was it? What does it imply? It implies, in terms of biblical understanding, that God is displeased with his people. Now, I say this with very great caution and very great soberness. We've seen on our TV screens... The vast areas of Australia that have been devastated by bushfires on an unprecedented scale. People's homes being burned to the ground. Lives and livelihoods lost. Millions, hundreds of millions of animals being destroyed. And people then saying, well, it's the fault of the politicians. It's because we've got the wrong government. We've got the wrong Prime Minister. We've got the wrong environmental policies. It's, it's, it's all the fault of people and their policies. And if we just change the government, we can put an end to all these fires. Or we can have some global summit in Paris or Tokyo or Glasgow, and we can get it all sorted, can't we? Put an end to all this. We need to know our Bibles. It is God who brings these events about. Are we saying, therefore, this is why I'm being very cautious, are we saying that every citizen in Australia 
is a worse sinner than every citizen of the United Kingdom where we are not experiencing wildfires? No. But remember our Lord Jesus speaking about that tower that collapsed in Siloam in Luke 13. And he said, are we saying that those on whom that tower fell are worse sinners than those on whom it did not fall? No. But unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. And the point is this, when devastation is brought into the world, we must not as Christians just say, well, it's people, well, it's governments, well, it's policies, well, it's just the environmental uh, uh, campaigns or, or lack of them or whatever it might be. No, it's, it, it may include those things. These things are not unimportant. But God is more important. And how we hear his word and honor him and listen to him. Destitution. Destitution. And then thirdly, departure. Departure. Still in verse 1. This famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And we might say, well, obviously, no-brainer, fair enough. Things get a bit dicey in one place, you go somewhere else. You pack your bags and you move on. If there's a famine, well, you don't stay where you are. You go to where there's pasture. Obviously, you do that, don't you? Who wouldn't do that? And this man is only going, we read, to sojourn, to go to Moab temporarily, just to wait out for a little while till the famine passes, and then he will probably, presumably with his family, go back to the land of Israel. But we need, again, to know our Bibles. There's more to it than just a bit of relocation. Going from Israel to Moab is not like going from England to Wales, or France into Belgium, or from North Dakota to South Dakota, or New South Wales to Queensland, or anything like that. No, it's a quite different thing. The people of Moab, though they are relatives of the people of Israel, were their enemies. By which I mean that the people of Moab had been a snare to Israel ever since their wilderness days. A spiritual snare. A moral snare. A military snare. We have the accounts in the book of Numbers, of Balaam and Balak. What was the aim of Balak, king of Moab, and Balaam whom he hired? It was to curse the people of Israel. We then have, shortly after that, the account of the idolatry of the people of Israel with Baal of Peor, a Moabite deity, or at least a Moabite encouraged whoring and idolatry and adultery. We also have in this book of the Judges that comes before Ruth, Eglon, king of Moab, that rather well-built king, you remember, who enslaved Israel for 18 years. Moabite king enslaving Israel for 18 years. Departure. I use this word departure carefully. It wasn't simply a departure from the land of Israel. It was a departure from the God of Israel. Now you might say, well, Elimelech and his family had no choice. The famine was so severe. Let me draw an application. When we are in hard circumstances, we may be faced with hard choices. 
but we ever need to weigh the consequences of our decisions and the spiritual impact that they might make. <coughs> it was a departure from the land. It was also a departure from the God and the worship of Israel. As becomes clear in the next and fourth D that I have. The fourth D is disobedience. Disobedience. Verse 2. If you go to the end of verse 2, we'll jump a bit forward to the end of verse 2. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Sorry, I thought we said sojourned. Yes, it does say sojourned in verse 1. In verse 2 it says remained there. Ah, I see. And then move forward to verse 4. Following the death of Elimelech, which we'll come to in a moment. The two sons of Elimelech and Naomi, Israelite men, they took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And far from this being a temporary lodging for them, they were setting up house and home in Moab. They were setting down deep roots in Moab. They were going so far, these sons, as to intermarry with Moabite women. Now you might say, well, what's wrong with that? We can so easily bring the perspective of the 21st century Western world to bear upon the Bible and not understand what the Bible is saying. Because we might say, well, the Bible's racist then, isn't it? Honestly. And that is a huge area that we need to understand Biblically, it's sensitive, it's important, the issue of racism. I'm not going to deal with it today, but we are looking at the word of God. And the word of God had very clearly said to the people of Israel that they were not to intermarry with those who were outside the land of Israel. And the mention of Moabite women especially should send alarm bells ringing. It was these daughters of Moab who had led the people of Israel into adultery and idolatry back in Numbers chapter 25. And the Lord had said in Deuteronomy 23 verse 3, No Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. This is the word of God. For an Israelite man to marry a Moabite woman was a profound breach of faithfulness to the God who had called the people of Israel to be a holy and a separate and an undefiled people for himself. This was disobedience. Disobedience had characterized the people of God for so long. If you think about the recent history of Israel up to this point, there was gross disobedience. The golden calf in Exodus 32 and then you go through into the end of the life of Moses and that great song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 speaks about the blessings of God and the word of God coming like gentle rain on, on tender grass. It's beautiful Hebrew poetry. But it talks in that very song of Moses about the people of Israel being corrupt, having hearts which turn away. And then you have at the end of Joshua, you have this dramatic scene 
where Joshua is renewing the covenant with the people of God in a similar way, in a sense, to what we did a, a week ago when we, we stood and we, we, we recited the creed and we read our membership vows again and we said, we are the Lord's people and I trust from our hearts we, we meant what we were saying. Joshua did that with the people of Israel in Joshua twenty twenty four, And they said to him, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. They stood as one man, as one woman, and said, we will serve the Lord. He is our God. Did Joshua say, great, good on you, well done, let's do it together, brilliant, fantastic. Did he say that? No, he did not. Do you know what he said to them? He said, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He knew that they would be disobedient. How did he know this? He knew it through experience. He knew it through many years of leading them. He also knew it, I think we might say, uh, doctrinally and theologically as, as we know it. Are you, am I, able to obey the Lord our God? Ourselves? Unaided? From our own inner natures? Are we obedient people? Left to ourselves? No, we are not. No, we are not. The Bible concludes every human soul under disobedience. That's the next step down. There's another one. There's a fifth D that we come to next. It's D is for death. Death. And it begins in verse 3 with Elimelech, the husband of, of Naomi, the father of these two sons. He dies in the land of Moab. And we might say, well, of course, that's probably not unexpected. He was presumably an older man, had a good innings, as people used to say, good age. There we go. He died. Shame. But then double tragedy strikes within 10 years. Marlon and Chilion, the two sons, clearly much younger men, also die. They're gone. And the woman, Naomi, is left without her two sons and her husband. Bereaved thrice. Left, bereft, with sons dead who didn't live long enough with their Moabite wives, clearly, to actually father any children. They must have died very, very soon after they married these Moabite women. And they're gone. And death has struck this family three times. Tragedy. The last enemy is death. The ultimate enemy is death. The ultimate statistic is death, as Bernard Shaw, I think, did actually say. Because you and I may not face disorder. We may not face destitution. We may not face departure. We may not indulge in gross disobedience. But we all have to face death. The death of our loved ones. And our own impending death. And reminders of our own mortality. And this death has followed on from disobedience 
It's all there, you see. It's all scriptural. I said there are many biblical themes that come out in the book of Ruth. The wages of sin is death. The first paragraph of the book of Ruth ends with death. That's the fifth D, but there's a sixth D, which in a sense summarizes the whole thing. And it's D for distress. Distress. Here are three widowed women mourning their three dead husbands. Three funerals, three burials, three experiences of grief and pain, all in quick succession. But in that culture, what has been death for these three men is effectively a death sentence for these three women as much as for their husbands. In that culture, without a close male relative, a husband, a son, a father, a brother, how could they support themselves? Again, we need to translocate into a different culture. Orpah couldn't say, it's okay, Naomi, I'll I'll go and get a job in Sainsbury. I'll work at the uh, checkout. Ruth couldn't say, it's okay, I'll enroll in an evening class and I'll become a, I'll learn how to do graphic design like, like, like Vicky does and I'll be able to get, you know, I'll, I'll support us that way. It doesn't work like that in that culture. One Israelite w- widow in Moab, two Moabite young widows with her. What hope did they have? Apparently none. They were in great distress. And we all experience distress of varying kinds and varying degrees. There is distress brought about by our own wrong, foolish, sinful actions. There is distress brought about because other people have hurt us, haven't they? There is distress brought about because we live in a fallen world with so many problems and so many harmful influences that distress us. So where is Naomi? So where is Orpah? So where is Ruth? At the end of verse 5 of chapter 1, they are at ground zero, aren't they? All happiness, prospect, hope, joy, laughter, smiles, sunshine, wrecked. Ruined, smashed to pieces. And I could have ended it there, couldn't I, this morning? But I didn't want to do that. No, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to read on to verse 6. And I did read verse 6. Because there is a seventh D for us this morning. It's D for deliverance. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited, visited his people and given them food. That says it all. We are all in a state of disorder, destitution, distress, and everything else. 
until the Lord comes to visit us. That's the story of the Bible time and time again. The people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years and they groaned in their slavery. They groaned and we read that their groaning was heard by the Lord. And he came to visit them. He came to visit them. What does visit mean? You pop round and say hello and you stay for a few minutes and then you're off again. No, it doesn't mean that. When the Lord visits, he comes with mercy. He comes with love. He comes with salvation. He comes in some big and meaningful way whenever the Lord visits. Because the Lord looks with pity and compassion on his people, seeing the distress that they are in. And even in this book of Judges that precedes Ruth, we read in chapter 2 that after uh, they had begun to turn away from the Lord, and the Lord handed them over into these foreign invaders and raiders who came and occupied them and took their land and enslaved them, we read there that the people were in great distress. But the Lord then raised up judges. And again and again the Lord was moved by their crying and their groaning and their weeping and their, their anguish and their pain and their suffering to deliver them and to deliver them. He raised up deliverer after deliverer. The Lord never leaves his people alone. Never leaves his people abandoned, though at times it may feel that way. And it does sometimes feel that way, doesn't it? Psalm 88 is in the Bible. Psalm 88 is in the Bible. The psalm where the psalmist, he notionally understands there is a God somewhere. He's even able to somehow cry out to this God. But is there any, any light, any relief, any comfort, any, any peace from that God? There's none. Darkness is his only companion. But even then he says, you are the God who delivers. And here we see a gracious tide turning. Naomi heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them bread. And we will see again and again as this story unfolds how God brings an end to all the distresses which these people have so far experienced. Let me finish by saying this. I repeat, these four short chapters of Ruth are like the Bible in miniature. What is the central message of the Bible? There's a big question, isn't there? There's a huge question. What's the central message of the Bible? What's the Bible in a nutshell? There are many answers. Here's one such answer. Psalm 68 and verse 20 says this. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. And if death is the ultimate plight from which we need deliverance, then we will be delivered from every other distress too. 
If we hope in the Lord, we will be delivered from the whole devastated landscape of our ground zero. But what is the deliverance? Who is the deliverer? We know who he is. He came into this world. And you can enumerate and list and categorize every kind of distress that I've mentioned and many, many others. The disorder and the destitution and the departure and all the rest of it. And you will see that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered all of those in extremis on the cross. Supremely, definitively. He became a curse for us. He was made sin for us. He became the object of the wrath and the anger of God. He was, he was put to death. He shed his blood. He gave up his life. He descended to ground negative infinity. Why? To take you and me up from where we may be, from where we are, from where we may know we are, from where we may maybe don't know where we are, but we really are there, but we need to be taken up, and he came to take us up and to save us and to take us through the rest of the book of Ruth, right? Which ends in joy, which ends in rejoicing, which culminates in a happy group of women exulting and praising God for his goodness in reversing all that has gone wrong so far and in superseding, in transcending everything else in this miserable world. The Lord Jesus, you see, has come to do that for you and me. However low you may sink, put your hope in Jesus Christ. He's the deliverer. He delivers from death and every other enemy and every other distress. He alone is the salvation, the deliverer whom God provides. Let's, let's pray together. Let's have a time to be quiet.